want to begin with a quote today. It says, Jesus did not go willingly to the cross so that we could have an easy life or offer a faith built on easy believism. As someone once said, now listen closely to this, salvation is free, but not cheap. It cost Jesus his life. That's a quote by Billy Graham. In our culture, it's common to make entrance into heaven pretty easy. Because we want everybody to be there, right? We want all of our family and friends to be there, so we just want to believe that they're going to all get there. But, but the truth is, if you're not really sharing the gospel, the true gospel, and if people aren't truly coming into relationship with him, then they still remain unsaved, no matter how much you want them to be saved. And it's also sort of a mockery of what Jesus has done for us. He died on the cross for people to be saved. It's not something that you just get into if you want to, or because... Your loved one wants you to. And so we need to to sort that out. And we need to make sure that we're really teaching what the Bible teaches on salvation. And we're applying it properly in our lives. We're going to be talking about today today as we continue our series, What We Believe. It's based on our statement of faith. And you can follow along. As we've said before, you can go to our... uh, Go to our website, and then as you get to the website, you can click on who we are and then click on uh, Statement of Faith. You know, I was reading originally, the Statement of Faith were called the Confessions, and they began with people dying. You know, people be dying on a cross or people be burning alive, and they would call out what they believed in and why. And then they began writing it down. And there's little variants. You know, for the most part, the core beliefs here that we've been talking about are what you're going to find in most churches that have continued to follow what the Bible teaches. We've talked about the Bible, the Godhead, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to talk about uh, salvation because we've been kind of touching on salvation as we've gone, haven't we? Because it, it ties in. But we're going to zero in, talk more about us and our need for salvation. And Just before we do, I want to remind you to be prepared for next week because we're going to talk about church. Um, When you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you then become the true church. Um, And so what is that all about? Do we really know what church is all about? We're going to talk about what we believe about that. But today, we'll, we'll talk about what we believe about salvation. Let's read first from the statement of faith. It says, people were made in the image of God, but fell into sin and are therefore lost. And only saved through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. When a person surrenders and receives Jesus Christ, they're born again through the Holy Spirit and are adopted into the family and kingdom of God. Simply said, we are saved by grace through faith alone in and because of Christ alone. The first thing that that we see here is that we're made in the image of God. I don't know if you've ever wondered what that means. You know, I I have, even as a pastor, I've kind of struggled. What exactly does that mean? The the key verse on it is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. There it is, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Um, Wayne Grudem, a well-known theologian, kind of put this together. And he said, really, the clearest way to say this from from the original Hebrew is, let us make him like us and to represent us. So we are supposed to be like God, like the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we're supposed to represent God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God, God the Son. Well, how do, how do we do that? 
What does that mean? Because after all, we're all animals when you get down to it, right? That's what they're teaching us in school these days, that you're all just really animals. There's no real major difference between you, you know, and we need to give them special treatment and so forth. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is very distinctive that there's something very special about us. And Grudem brings out four things, four aspects. And I, we don't have time to go into them in detail, but just, just to think about some of these things, the moral aspects. There's this inner sense of right and wrong that human beings have. You know, we sit down, we work things out. You know, we, we sit on committees and we talk about ethics. My dog and my cat, they don't do that. You know, they chase each other around the room this morning and they don't stop and say, now, wait a minute, when I go here, you know, this, you're not allowed to bother me when I'm here. They don't, they don't communicate like that. But, but human beings do. There are spiritual aspects. We have this immaterial spiritual realm of existence. Um, and our spiritual life enables us to interact with the God of the universe. I don't know. There's been a couple of times my dog was sitting on her hind legs, had her hands up, and I wondered if maybe she was communicating to the Lord, but I don't think so. And if she did, it wasn't for an hour, right? Animals don't do that. There's something unique about us. We actually can talk to our creator. There's that whole mental aspect, the way that we think, the complex languages that we have alone. And our creativity, our artistic creativity, our scientific ability. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity into man's mind. There's the relational aspects that we have. Um, there's this depth of interpersonal harmony. These relationships with marriages, with churches and stuff. You don't see that with animals like we have to that degree. And then, of course, there's the physical aspects. If there's just something between us and our character that as we describe God and the Bible and as we see how Jesus came to earth as a man, it's different than the other animals. In fact, we're supposed to rule over the other animals, which means that we should, you know, we can, we can go to extremes, can't we? On one side say, well, animals don't matter. Well, God doesn't say that. They were created by him, and we should treat them well. But on the other hand, we say, well, they're equivalent to human beings, uh, not, okay? So very different things there, and we need to keep those in mind. What we need to keep in mind is that we have been made in the image of God, and that is a wonderful thing. There should be, we should not uh, have self-esteem problems with who we are. That is a, a thing of great dignity and great bearing. We've been made like the God of the universe in these different areas that we've talked about. The problem is not how we were made. The problem is not in our humanity. The problem is that our humanity has fallen. And that's where we have our problem. And that's our next point that we have, and that is that we fell into sin, and therefore we are lost. Genesis chapter 3 begins that tale. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and um, they're prompted by Satan, the serpent, to do that. And they do that in disobedience of God. And immediately, notice that their eyes are opened, and they realize that they're naked, and they sew you know, fig leaves together, and they begin to, to try to cover themselves up because of this shame that comes, because they realize where they are. And th this is called the fall. And it's a heavy thing, you know. And, and by the way, when we look at this, we say it's a beautiful, poetic story, great mythological tale. Other religions have something similar. No religions have anything this detailed. And if you look at it, and you understand literature, literature is written in different genres, means different styles. This literature is not poetic. He's writing a narrative. It's written as this is fact. There's even factual data given in it. 
So this is what happened. And the result of this is, and of course it's, you know, it's a summary, we're not going to all the details of it, but what we know has happened is that they were basically disobedient to God. They now know the difference between good and evil. They are now accountable for it, and they're in trouble, and they get driven from the garden. They're driven from the Garden of Eden. So they said, that's bad news for Adam and Eve. Too bad they blew it. How about us? I mean, we didn't do it. It's not my fault. Um, So why is this a problem? The problem is it's become inherited. It's something that's been passed down to us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, people will argue about this. They'll say, well... You're, you're born a sinner. By the time you're born, you're sin, in sin. And others will say, no, you're not born a sinner, but you fall into sin shortly afterwards. Choose it, man. I don't, I don't really care. You know what I mean? <laughs> it ends up the same. You're in trouble, all right? So we don't need to argue over that. The problem is we're at the same place. We, we need God. We need a Savior. We're in trouble. Um, the consequences are severe. At the beginning of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, physical death, but also implied there is spiritual death, eternal death before God. Jesus himself said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Those are scary thoughts. So we're lost, but there's good news. And that is that Jesus also said, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we get to the next point, and that is that we are only saved by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We talked a lot about this last week. Don't go into a lot of detail, but what I want to emphasize here is the word regeneration. The regen is used later too. The word regeneration means to be born again, and we do not birth ourselves. We do not make ourselves become Christians. And that's going to be a, a recurrent theme here. And what we see and what we believe in from what the Bible teaches, it, it is actually the Holy Spirit who is the one who puts in our mind that we need to be saved, who convicts us, as we saw last week, and is the one who, in our soul, changes us and gives us new birth. He washes us clean. He gives us a spiritual baptism. And that's how we come to know Christ. Therefore, if anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are now in him. He is now in us. We have this unity with the God of the universe. We don't do it. The Holy Spirit does it. God does it. Isn't that crazy? He even gives us the faith to, do, to come into a relationship with him. He enables this all to happen. But if it's not based on us and what we've done, who is it based on? It's our next point. We are only saved by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which is our next point is it is based on the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection. It's based on what Jesus did for us. That word propitiation is a good one to hang on to. We learned it a few weeks ago. It means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into good. So people can make sacrifices. It doesn't matter anywhere. People say, boy, that was nice. He made that sacrifice, but it didn't buy anything. But a propitiation is when you make a sacrifice that benefits somebody in some way. Jesus died on the cross in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made himself to be sin." who knew no sin, and here's the benefit, here's the favor, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died in our place to make it possible, as a substitute for us, to make it possible for us to live forever with him. And he made living with him forever possible through his resurrection. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk later about what, what awaits us. 
But because of what Jesus has done, we'll not only live here on earth in a relationship with him, but we can live with him forever in heaven. This is exciting stuff. Um, the problem is, you know, how does it, does it have anything to do with us? Do you ever wonder that? I mean, but how does that work out? I mean, even some of the songs, great selections today, but we look at that and, and you know, don't, don't I have to make a decision for salvation? What do I do? You know, what is my part in all of this? All right. So let's just look at this, the process of salvation on our part. Um, we chose the word, the, use the word surrender. And I like that word. Um, Webster's defines it as to give up, relinquish, or to give oneself up, or to yield. And it, you're giving up, but at the same time, it, it implies a consent. There's, there's this, this mental consent, this mental willingness. to You both give up and you receive. Um, a good passage, I think, to help explain this whole idea of surrender is John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. John is speaking about Jesus, and he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want to hang on to a couple words here. One is receive. A couple phrases, really. Receive, believed, um, and, uh, and in his name. The word received... Uh, is an interesting word, and, and it basically implies that you have an intellectual agreement. You agree with the facts about Jesus, but also that you are welcoming and submitting to him. To receive is you agree, and then you say, come on in. There's this welcoming aspect. That helps describe surrender, but the other word that helps describe surrender, and they come together really as a package, is the word believed. It's often used in the Bible, pastuo, or it can also mean put your faith in, put your trust in. And so there's this combination of, I'm going to, I'm going to believe in my heart, you know, that this is true, and I'm going to welcome it in. I'm going to surrender myself to this. I'm going to give it up and ask it to come in to me. And who, what am I doing this with? I'm doing it with God. And when it says in the name of God, it means God in his totality. So I'm taking in the God of the universe. I'm surrendering to him and saying, your will be done, not mine. You're the king. I'm your servant. I will do whatever you want. I'm yours. I give my life to you. That's, that's the process. It's not a lot of works there, see? It's not the same as works. It's just kind of like, come on in. I give you my life to you. The process, and this is perf not a perfect illustration, and, and one that requires a tremendous amount of imagination. But imagine that I was a great high school football player. I sometimes like to imagine that. Um, and, and I had all these offers to play at all these different schools. And I could look around and say, where am I going to play? In life, you have all these opportunities. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And I looked at all the different coaches, and I got to know one coach. And I got to know a lot about him, and I met him. I knew who he was, became acquainted with him, and I realized that he was the real deal. And so at that point, what did I do? I knew him, but I didn't really know him, did I? I just knew who he was. But then I decided that I'm going to play for that team. I signed a contract, and I surrendered myself, and I put myself under his authority for those years that I play for him. And now he is in control of my life. And I'm playing for him. 
Do you understand what's going on there? There there is this balance. He's the one who's pursuing me, and yet I have to respond. And ultimately, I surrender to him. Imperfect, but hopefully it helps a little bit in understanding this process that we go through in coming into a relationship um, with Jesus Christ. And, and when that happens, there's a couple things to take note of. One is that he's emphatic. Again, it's not something that you do on your own. You don't get to heaven because of your heritage. I grew up um, near Mission San Juan de Guadalupe, San Jose de Guadalupe in, in Fremont. And a lot of my pals, you know, grew up kept very big Catholic neighborhood. Um, and I'll tell you, if you were a certain nationality, you were Catholic. If you're Italian, you're Catholic. You know, it just got to be. It doesn't work that way. You're not, because of a nationality, you're not getting into heaven. You say, well, but my mom and dad always went to church. They served in the church. They were leaders in the church. I, you know, I go to church. Not enough. I want to. Not enough. There has to be this spirit of surrender, this idea of where you, where you receive, where you believe in who Jesus really is. And if that happens, you know what happens to you? You become his child. He adopts you as his own. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have been received. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a name like Papa in the Aramaic language that was common among the Jews at that time. God has become an intimate father for us, and we've come into relationship with him. Pretty cool stuff. Now, a summary statement of this is that we are saved by grace through faith alone in and because of Christ alone. I want to look at one more verse in particular. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses, or one passage, chapters, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've looked a lot about how what we need to do. I want to look a little bit more here on what God does in this process. First of all, this is made possible because God says, I don't, I don't care what your problems are, what your baggage is. You never can get there on your own. I'm making this available to you. That's grace. You don't deserve it. I'm giving it. And again, notice that it's nothing you can do on your own by works. And again, the word faith, you just have to believe you know, and receive. But there's something else that's important here, as he says, but it's given to you as a gift. It's given to you as a gift, and, uh, and that's cool. I like that. If you, We'd started off earlier, talked about the beginning of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I want to read the whole verse here. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See the book ends? Wages of sin is death. This is what we deserve because our ancestors turned away from God, and we've continued to fall, turn away from God again and again and again. But this is what God offers and what we receive when we surrender to him. And it comes not as a reward. See, there's a, you know the difference between reward and gift? Reward, you earn it in some way. But gift is just given to you. Sometimes I think it's kind of funny the way we, we celebrate birthdays. As if somebody had done something. <laughs> you know, think of a one-year-old birthday party. So the mother has nine months of carrying this baby 
and goes through all the agony of the childbirth and the father's on pins and needles and they're doing the best they can off in a young family to make ends meet and they're tired and they're spending blood, sweat, and tears and then they celebrate the baby's birthday. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? You know, we all do it, but when you think about it, it doesn't even make sense. You know, the baby didn't have anything to do. What you, what's this all about? <laughs> Salvation is like celebrating a one-year-old's birthday. You did nothing. God gives you rebirth through the Holy Spirit. And that's what he promises. There's, I need to add an addendum onto this, though. And because too often we stop at verse 9 in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. And verse 10 is extremely important. Uh, verse 10 reads, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now you're saying, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We said that this is not about works. It's just about God's grace and us receiving and believing and surrendering. So is there some contradiction here? And and there isn't. You know, what we're really saying here is that we are saved by grace through faith for works. Did you catch that? We're saved by grace through faith, but then what do we do with it? We serve God. So we're saved by grace through faith for works works. Not say by works, but for works. It is the evidence that we're saved. If nothing happens, then it wasn't real. We were just going through the motions. But if our faith is real, it should result in a transformed life and in a life that continues to transform and continues to grow in God. There will be ups and downs, of course, but for the most part, we're on, a tra- we're on an upward trajectory in our relationship with God. The word for workmanship can mean poem or work of art. Stephen Curtis Chapman, in his uh, song that he wrote for his his young daughter, Emily, a beautiful song, you might remember it, an old one now, um, Fingerprints of God. He said, you're a masterpiece that all creation applauds, and you're covered with the fingerprints of God. The same thing, spinning off of this word, could be said about everybody in this room. God has his fingerprints all over you. He made you precisely who you are. He has a plan for your life. He has a ministry that he wants to do in your life in conjunction with the whole plan of everything that he's doing. Each of you has different things to offer. God wants you to identify those things and jump on board. How great will those things be? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will, do, will also do the work that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You have to do greater works than Jesus as time goes on. Isn't that incredible? God wants to do some powerful things in your life. And sometimes we miss that. Sometimes as we talk today about the persecuted church, um, because we're not under persecution, because life gets kind of easy, and we kind of get spiritually fat and lazy, and we don't realize some of the powerful things that God wants to do in our lives, if we'll trust him, if we'll reach out, and minister to others, and use our gifts for him. How do we know what those things are that we should do for God? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Henry Blackaby used to like to point out in this passage that, uh, you know, Jesus is an example of how we should live our lives. And What Jesus did is he said, basically, I watch what God is doing, and I join him there. 
What is God doing in your life? What do you do well in? What do people say you're good at? Are you using that for him? Who has he put into your life who doesn't know him? Guess what? That wasn't accidental. All these different circumstances in life come from God, and we need to say, what is he doing, and where can I join him? What ministry is there in the church that you could join? Where could you get involved? All those different things are, are being put there by God, and now it's up to you to identify and join them. And as we do that, as we walk with him, we'll see him work in our lives in powerful ways. I, I want to briefly address the elephant in the room, right? The elephant in the room is this. Trying to figure out the things we've talked about. Is it really about what God is doing for us? Or is it really about how we respond to what God's doing? What, what happens in salvation? On one hand, is it, is it all about oh, God's sovereignty, election, predestination, things like that? Or is it really about our free will and our response to God? And if you're on this side, you call yourself a Calvinist. And if you're on this side, you call yourself an Arminian. And boy, we can have some good, good battles over that. What I want to emphasize when we talk about what we believe in as a church, we don't get into that. We don't believe in fighting over those positions because in truth, the Bible describes both. And there's room for us to agree to disagree. Remember when we went through Romans? I thought it was fascinating. Paul's going through Romans. The first half of Romans, he talks like he's a Calvinist. The last part, he talks like he's an Arminian. Is he confused? I don't think so. But he never stops and says, oh, wait a minute, let me explain. He just floats from one position back and forth to the other, and nobody else has a problem with it either. It's interesting that when you study the lives of John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, for who they were both named, neither of them were Calvinist or Arminian. Both of them were kind of here on, on the, both sides of it. They weren't, they weren't caught up in it. If you study the church throughout history, most of the time in church history, they don't argue over this issue. If you go to most of the churches in the world today, they don't have a problem with it. The Western world has a problem with it. And Satan brings division while God brings unity. And we need to be careful. Uh, this is an important application for us not to get hung up on these things. It's okay to look into them. In fact, I encourage you to. It's okay to discuss it. I encourage you to. It's okay to have strong opinions. That's fine. But at the end of the day, we agree to disagree. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And you never want to be more of an Arminian or more of a Calvinist than you are a Christian. So, so those are the kinds of things we need to be careful of, those extremes that can divide us. And, and understand at the end of the day, I, what Isaiah said, I think, still holds true today. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's look at some other practical implications today. You know, we, we often talk about the ABCs of the gospel. Theologically, when we look at salvation, do they hold up? Or are we saying something that's just kind of pithy and cute um, that we like to say? So let's, let's back up and look at this. A, admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Does that fit with what we talked about today? I mean, yeah, we're, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. 
That's the whole starting point for everything. Sin, by the way, again, is not just, you know, I'm a bad person, but it's more the idea that um, I'm not following God's will. I'm trying to do this on my own. And that's the natural way we all live until we come into relationship with him and have him guiding us and directing us in our lives. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. We talked about that he died in our place. He rose again. Furthermore, John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. Um, C, choose to follow Jesus and put your faith in him. And we just talked about how we need to surrender. We need to uh, receive him. We need to believe in him and in who he is and allow him to have full control of our lives. Now, once we know Jesus, what do, what do we do with that? We need to tell others. Who do we tell? We tell those people that God has placed in our lives. And, and we don't get people into heaven just because we want them to go in. Jesus says, and we talked about this earlier, just this last summer, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, that it's a narrow road to heaven. That's something we need to be careful of. People really need to know the Lord. If they aren't going to church and they aren't living like their Christian lives, they may adamantly say they're believers, but I would, I would be concerned. I'd be praying for them and seeing what you can do to get them to come to church and fellowship because it, it, it should be clear. It should be clear in our own lives. God should be making changes in your life. If you're not growing in your relationship with the Lord, then, you know, it, it, it may be real, but you may be at just a tough point in your life where you need to work through that and get back on, on the horse and get riding again. Um, or it may be that maybe it's not sincere. So I think you really need to look at your life seriously because our life should be changing and growing when we give our lives to Christ. Who are some of the people that um, we minister to beyond that? Specifically, we look at our oikos. You know, the people in those days, a household was 8 to 15 people. Who are the 8 to 15 people in your life who are unsaved, unchurched, that you can get alongside and minister to them? And finally, and we've already alluded to this a little bit, but what are you doing, again, with your gifts and abilities for God? If you are in a relationship with Jesus, are you in church regularly? Are you talking to him every day in prayer? Are you reading your Bible? Are you telling others about Jesus? Uh, Those are the marks of our faith. We aren't saved by those things, but if our faith is sincere, they they should happen. And we've said this before, you know, I I mean, if if you're a 49er fan, but you never watch a game, never listen to a game, never wear their paraphernalia, Never talked to anybody else about him, but somebody asked him, oh, yeah, I'm a Niner fan. I would have issue with that, <laughs> right? Um, but, but Christian people do that all the time about their faith in Christ. And there's no room for that. Either, either you're in or you're out. And that's what we've been talking about today. So the bottom line is that we need to present Jesus and his message accurately. Um, and people need to receive him for who he is, not for who we want him to be. Uh, we must do our part, even if people reject him. F.F. Bruce, the great theologian, once observed, it is all too easy to believe in a Jesus who is largely a construction of your own imagination, an inoffensive person whom no one would really trouble to crucify. But we know the truth, and we must share it even when it is rejected. It may result 
in someone being saved today. It is the reason why you've been saved, because somebody shared it with you. With whom will you share it today? Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thanks for the opportunity to share these things that are just... We talk about it a lot, but we don't unpack it this deeply, and there's no message more important for us individually than to come into a relationship with you. I pray that if, so, if somebody doesn't know you, that they would come and talk to us and surrender their lives to Christ today. Amen.